Hello, everyone. Uh, I am I'm thrilled to be back again with Peter Bale, talking about the week that was doing our New Zealand over the horizon. Hmm. And for those and of I, you, and I'm thrilled to be here with you too, Ben. Yeah, no, it's good. We're wizened old hacks. Speak for yourself. <laughs> who like to wander around the world, uh, looking at the the stuff that interests us in the news game. And not just here in New Zealand, but overseas. We've both worked for Reuters and lots of other news organisations overseas. So we care about what's happening overseas too. And I'm sure many of you do. And also what's happening in the political economy and the world around us. Um, just for those of you who haven't been in on this before, it's a pretty uh, loose affair where Peter and I um, talk about the things that we've been covering this week in Peter's email, which he does for the spinoff and which you're very welcome to connect up to via the link on the car car and that I've sent out on Twitter. And you are, you're welcome to click on to that. Peter puts out a weekly bulletin on the spinoff, particularly focusing on global affairs. And we call it a hoon because the collective noun for the kaka is, is a hoon of kaka. So two is, is a collective, two is enough to call ourselves a hoon. And with uh, more than 40 people on at the moment, that's definitely a hoon. So, Since it's only the 40 of us, we can talk about the Auckland judge and the Wanaka couple extensively, I hope. Yeah, uh, well, let's, let's start with that. That's oh, been really? Are we going that far? All right. So I think that the judge committed what's known as the Streisand effect by trying to help her son, help, help in inverted commas, her son by hiring a QC as the first reaction and seeking... Name suppression. The Streisand effect is named after Barbara Streisand, and I was looking it up today, and it refers to a time when she tried to take legal action to prevent aerial photographs of her house being circulated on the internet, and about sort of twelve people had had found it before then, and then tens of thousands of people found the found the pictures of her house once she took the legal action. And I feel as though this judge, uh, district judge, compounded the whole affair as well by then last night threatening to sue Stuff because Stuff had a very polite request to her to talk to her about the camp. She didn't just decline. She got her lawyer to decline and threaten them and say that the even the questions they were asking was defamatory. And I, th I think this is really large overreach. And it had the effect, I think, Bernard, of deeply undermining the apology that the son, William Willis, and his, and his girlfriend made. I, frankly, and funny enough, this generated a Patrick Smelly column uh, on business desk this week, which was extremely apposite and arrived just in time for them to uh, read it and then make the apology. I think they should have gone on television, on, on TV, TVNZ, on, on, on Seven Sharp, and had their bottoms paddled by, by Hillary. Yep. Just be really, truly admitted that they'd been dicks, and I think it would be over in a week or over in a couple of days. Whereas, in fact, they were dicks. They did admit that they were dicks, and then they compounded it all by trying to have trying for suppression and then the mother went even step further and uh, threatened to sue journalists i think it's bonkers yeah no it's pr 101 um when you're in that you know you've done wrong and you're about to get jumped on from a height by every man and his dog you prostrate yourself in front of every man and his dog in front of a camera yeah and just ask for a little bit of forgiveness i just i think also bernard the I, new zealanders are in a very censorious mood and the you do get the pitchfork pitchforks and tumbrils out quite far. They've been stupid. But on the other hand, when I look at the people who have been prosecuted for breaching conditions, particularly I'm thinking of that family that where the mother was prosecuted, I think, for letting the son go to the tangi. There's some pretty extraordinary behaviour being exhibited by the judiciary in punishing those people. So I, I fear that these people will actually have the book thrown at them and certainly deserve to if we're going to get beyond this idea that there's one, one, one judicial system for one and one for another. Yeah, the whole team of five million things starting to look a bit frayed, I have to say. This week, for example, we heard that the government had deported a bunch of people to Fiji mm. in the last year or so. And, and not alone, there's been a whole bunch of people kicked out for all sorts of uh, reasons. I've written repeatedly about a, a Filipino builder in Queenstown, his wife and son, who had no job during the first lockdown, uh, had run out of money. Oh, and yes, I remember that. Yeah couldn't get access to the food parcel grants because they were living in Arrowtown and the particular version of district council there didn't have any. Queenstown was giving them out, food town vouchers. And so the the guy in desperation lied about where he lived to get hold of some vouchers. Mm. And this was discovered later on, he was convicted and deported. Yeah. 
though he was a builder who'd been in New Zealand for two and a half years. He was building a family here. Of course, will be needed in Queenstown to build in just nuts. This is happening all over the place, just in the latest lockdown, for example. Again, the migrants who are here have no access to welfare. And we've seen with all of those cases of people overseas trying to get back in, uh, their places in MIQ taken by all sorts of sports people and movie stars. And Yes, but we would be complaining if we weren't able to... You know, sports, sports is critical to New Zealand morale and the movies are critical to the business. The, those Avatar people who came in, I think Avatar's a pretty dreadful film, but it was terrific that they came, in my opinion. We've got to keep a few things going in the economy and we've definitely got to watch the Wiggles. <laughs> it's a choice, though, and this is the problem. Given mm. that it's so tight now on... Mm. Uh, places come in. I mean, that's the other news that's come out this week. The government's announced that from next Monday, if you go on to the MB site for uh, MIQ spaces at eight o'clock, you get into the lobby, you stay there and hope that at nine o'clock, when they dish out the limited number of places, you get one of them. You obviously have to show you've got your passport. And this is designed to avoid this problem of people sitting on their laptops um, all night. Or hiring, or hiring someone to do it for them. Yeah bots. Uh, in theory, this gets around the bots. Not sure whether that's true or not. We'll, we'll see. So we've been thinking a little bit around the houses there, but what do we actually think about this whole Wanaka thing? I see there's another couple being looked at the moment. What, I mean, yeah. is, the, is this just a class war in New Zealand and, and New Zealand being too censorious? Or, or is it that PR lesson that you described where you don't ag ag aggravate the mistake, you apologise and move on? Yeah, given the, the real restrictions at the border, only 5% of the applications... Mm who go across the border have been approved. There's been tens of thousands of people who've wanted to go, for example, for weddings and funerals outside of Auckland. They've been rejected. Mm. So when a, a equestrian manager and his wife, who is a lawyer, use their pretty precious vouchers mm. to get Auckland to basically jump on a plane in Hamilton and go to Wanaka for a holiday... That not only breaks the rules, but uh, means that all of those people who, for very legitimate reasons, but can't go, mm. the ministry doesn't want them to spread this horrible disease, look at everyone else and go, gee, I'm sacrificing here for the good of the nation. And yeah, no, it is unfair. You're absolutely right. It is unfair. But you did a piece, though, today on the spinoff, which I really like yesterday, and it's another, I mean, you know, podcast, of course, but you're talking about the masters of the universe and you, you bring up Tom Wolfe from the, the Bonfire of the Vanities. It was a wonderful film and a great phrase, the masters of the universe. And we all know we've met these people with their big, swag, big swaggering dicks. What, and you also use a phrase that, that is both true and a cliche, but an excellent phrase, that culture eats strategy for breakfast. So how does this idea that there is no sort of kind capitalism work through you and can it work in New Zealand? Yeah, well, in New Zealand, um, we have led the way in a bit, in a way. The New Zealand Super Fund, which now has nearly $60 billion in its fund, from 10 years or so ago, has been trying to invest sustainably and sensibly in companies that aren't brewing up oil or making weapons or growing cigarettes or whatever it is. And they've also organised a whole bunch of other sovereign wealth funds, not just here in Australasia, but have led the creation of these um, socially responsible mm. investment associations all around the world, which now control more than a third of the funds under management globally. And the point of the uh, introduction of the Masters of the Universe was to say that um, perhaps some of them can change, mm. but it's going to be. And uh, my story, which for those people who haven't listened to the podcast or read the article that worked with it on the spinoff, there's a link in the note that went out on the kaka. I told some stories about when I was working as a journalist for Reuters in London, actually at the same time as Peter was working for Reuters in London. And my job as the M&A reporter for Reuters covering banking and insurance was to get to know these masters of the universe and find out what they were going to do next and hopefully beat my competitors at Bloomberg and EFT and everywhere else to the story about which bank was going to buy which other bank or contest a takeover for another bank. And the numbers were huge. And I, it was an area and a, and a group of people I'd never met before. I'm a country boy from New Zealand. And my idea of, of high finance is buying two houses instead of one. Mm. And uh, these yeah, guys... But they're mansions, but they're mansions, Bernard. We know they're mansions. <laughs> uh, 
And these guys, and they're almost always guys, were operating at a different plane. In many cases, they were incredibly highly educated and very aggressive, very sure of themselves, and often just plain bright as hell. And often you, when you're in a conversation with someone who knows your, knows an area much, much better than you do, in part because their IQ is much higher, <laughs> it's quite a hard, a hard uh, conversation to maintain. But I tried and we got there. But what it taught me is that is that saying, um, the rich are not like you and me. Richer. Got, yeah, they've got money. <laughs> much richer. Well, these guys really are not like you. Mm. Although I increasingly found myself working as hard as as hard as them as time went on, in part to try and keep up with them. But these guys would work 18-hour days mm. back and forth from New York to London around Europe. And there was one particular moment when I realized I was um, – not quite out of my depth, but in a place that I didn't really want to stay very long. When I, one of the guys I was um, trying to uh, schmooze to tell me what the next deal was, he was buying the beer because he could damn well afford it. He was just about to finish up and then his phone blew up. And remember, this is, this is back in 1990, when everyone had Blackberries. <laughs> and it was weird for people to answer, the, answer a phone or, or do an email in public, which mm. now was it. And anyway, he's wheeled out of this pub to talk to his colleagues in New York because New York had just closed. It was about 10 o'clock at night in London. And I was about to say, bye-bye, we'll let you do your thing and I'll jump in a cab and spend an hour getting home. And then suddenly about six or seven other people just like this guy stumbled out of a West End theatre just across the road. And then I realised it was the same group of investment bankers, the same mm. thing in New York, yep. and they'd all call from, from their bosses. And they'd all left their um, wives and partners inside the theatre watching the final act just so they could do their Get out job. Do their transaction. Yep. yep. As I got to know these people, I realised they really just were all about the deal. They cared about the size of their bonus, getting the deal done, moving on to the next thing. Everything was transactional. Mm -hmm. They were telling you about how wonderful this deal was because it was going to mean that 5,000 people would lose their jobs and shareholders would make... 19% instead of 14% and how this was going to create lots of shareholder value. Suddenly it occurred to me that they hadn't really thought about 4,000 people. No, no, they don't care about that. But Bernard, what, 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 how does this apply to New Zealand? Because I'm, I'm very interested in what you say about the super fund and you've got somebody there saying that it's an answer to the ills of capitalism. Uh, I, I always think with the super fund, and I'm, I'm not terribly familiar with this, that when superannuation was first created in the Muldoon years, Bill Rowling had proposed a um, contributor system and we would have a Temasek Singapore style sovereign wealth fund if we'd done that. Now, that smacked of socialism to Muldoon at the time and all of the New Zealand public, particularly those in the right age group, voted for a non-contribute superannuation system, more intergenerational uh, theft by boomers, which you're very good on. So how, does, how are New Zealand capitalists thinking about this? I, I saw the guy from Briscoe's this week in an extremely unflattering picture becoming a billionaire, he's done extremely well out of all of that. Are they all soft and cuddly? They're, they're starting to realise that if they're not soft and cuddly, they're going to lose mm. uh, staffers. They're not going to be able to employ people. Uh, some of their investors are going to pull out. And also, some of their customers start to notice stuff. So Briscoe's is a good example, actually. Last year, Rod Duke, the guy who accidentally on purpose took the wage subsidy right at the start of the first lockdown, because you know, understandably, it looked like his... Mm. Oh, it was a perfectly valid thing to do, but tell me, has he paid it back? Yes, he has. Oh, and, good, and after, excellent. Yeah, after he realised, oh, I, I don't, I don't need that money. I, yeah, I'll pay it back. Okay. Yeah, I don't so need he, to do. I don't need to pay it for my helicopter pad in uh, in Hearn Bay. No, and and so he did pay it back. Mm, and oh, good. Second time round, but it was the pressure from the public, and also you're starting to see activist investment funds jumping in there and telling these CEOs and others that they want them to do the thing. And a really good example that's just cropped up is Mobile, the huge oil company in the States. It was forced to do a lot more carbon emissions reduction mm. when a very small activist fund called Engine Number no. 1 gathered together a whole bunch of other funds, including BlackRock, to essentially gang up on the management of the company and say, hey, you need to do the right thing by the environment. And just this week, Chevron, its competitor, mm -hmm. If it didn't have a decent amount of carbon emissions reduction investment, it was going to get ganged up on by these hair-shirty fund managers as well. So it is, it is having an impact, but as we talked about in the podcast with Barry Coates, a former Green MP mm -hmm. who now runs 
the uh, a website which allows people to choose which funds are the the best in terms of most ethical, the least carbon intensive, the least nasty for human trafficking, all those sorts of things. He was saying that, yes, you can make a difference by choosing to invest in the right funds and having pressure applied by fund managers and regulators and bankers. That's the other thing. But still, you need uh, democracy and the government to do the right thing. Where is shareholder activism, if anywhere, going to come from in New Zealand? I I wonder whether sharesies and the, the mass participation of individuals through that might help. Because I've been very unimpressed with the level of surveillance and so on by the end of, and, and NZX. And this is you're talking about a country where you've got more government involvement in the economy than you have had for many years. Where, where's it going to come from, this activism in New Zealand? Is there going to be any? Yes, the super fund and a lot of KiwiSaver funds are getting there. And you see the likes of Simplicity and others who make a noise. Hmm. In New Zealand, you're right, we haven't had a, a culture where people will get up in public and criticize other business leaders in public. We have what I call a Coru Lounge Society. Mm, mm. Business and government is about two or 3,000 people. They all know each other. They bump into each other in the Coru Lounge when things are flying, usually. And um, they tend to criticize each other in private or not at all because they it's such a small place that you know that at some point you're going to bump into the person you criticized in public. Mm. They're going to be your boss or um, a fellow director, or they you want to, you'll need to employ them and hope they'll do the right thing by you. New Zealanders, we, we tend to be, there's an element of passive aggressive yeah. as well. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Why don't we just be aggressive? Now, look, speaking of aggression, shall we change the subject to this, um, I think, rather extraordinary thing, AUKUS, the Australia-UK-US defence agreement, which is really an agreement to incredibly piss off the French and to, for Australia yeah. to cuddle up even more to the United States in, a, in an extraordinary... I mean, they'll be buying some second-hand F-111 jets soon if they're not careful. Yeah, it is an extraordinary big piece of news this week. It really surprised everyone because the Australians have gotten together with the Brits and the Americans to essentially buy themselves the most dangerous and most effective long-range strike capability outside of America and Britain. Mm. These are nuclear Marines, they can stay un, uh, under underwater for months if that's what you want. And if you think level four lockdown is bad, <laughs> just imagine that. So, well, I think I saw it was $90 billion, plus they're going to have to pay the French a $500 million break fee. And they've already spent something like $2.8 billion on the French submarines. The French are not entirely happy. And yet again, of course, but nobody in NATO, nobody, no, none of the other US allies or Europeans knew anything about this coming up. And of course, the, the thing that I found particularly funny about this was, well, worrying actually, was Biden forgetting Scott Morrison's name, which really didn't bode my thought. The whole thing didn't bode. It looked like a very all the way with LBJ 1950s, 1960s arrangement. Yeah, the Australians are very serious about this, though. They are worried about China and they're a little bit closer than us even though China is their largest trading partner. In fact, Australia is more exposed to China than we are. Mm. And, and increasingly less exposed, though, because they're going to take less of it, other than, as you say before, the iron ore, which they need. Ah, yes, and that's the difference. The Australians feel pretty um, confident about themselves because they know that Chinese have no choice but to buy iron ore from Australia. You can't get it anywhere else. And you need iron ore if you're going to pump up your economy with infrastructure, steel and concrete. The Australians feel bullish on the trade front and have gotten away with it, really. Mm. Remember, the Chinese have done all sorts of things to tar- uh, put extra taxes on Australian wine imports. There's been problems with barley, um, wheat, all sorts of things. The Australians have found other markets for them and the global prices haven't changed. So the Australians didn't do too badly out of that. In fact, the Australians have been running a current account surplus for the last couple of years, in the middle of this... They've still, they've still had a commodities boom. But, just, but, but I, I think China has a point when it says that this comes out of a Cold War mentality. Just, and Biden had his first conversation with Xi Jinping last week in six months. Presumably didn't tell him about this. They didn't agree on, on, a, on having another conference, uh, a, a meeting. This standoff with China is increasingly aggressive in both directions or increasingly Cold Warish in both directions, it seems to me. Yeah, but there was a reason for the Cold War. There was a Marxist-Leninist dictatorship that was dangerous and growing force in the world, and America and its allies decided to push back. 
And you could argue it meant... Yeah, but, our 20... economies, but our economies were never this entwined. The Soviet Union was a, was a lame economy, serving only its, only its own people with poor consumer goods, had a fantastic military-industrial complex, of course, which sucked the economy dry. I'm really reminded with this. The, the, um, in fact, just before we came on, the foreign ministry spokesman in, in China, Xiao Yuan, said that this deal gravely undermines regional stability and aggravates the regional arms race and raises questions about Australia's commitment to nuclear non-proliferation. I have to think that this is accurate. Weirdly, you know, it wasn't yeah. it wasn't quite as inflammatory as some of the things that the Chinese foreign ministry says. But this is a very aggressive thing, and I think that, you know, people were saying in New Zealand, particularly as usual, the National Party getting quite the wrong end of the stick. This means nothing for Five Eyes. Five Eyes continues perfectly, and New Zealand is not going to have nuclear submarines, and nor would it want ninety billion dollars worth of nuclear submarines being built in Adelaide. Got a law that says they can't come. Correct. That's good. Correct. Depending on how you think about that, but yes, exactly. It's that it means nothing for the Five Eyes. I, I just can't imagine it. So I, I, I thought that was a real furphy, as we might say sometimes. The Australians are dead serious about it, though. And having covered China from the New Zealand end for three or four years here, and watched the various moves by the Xi Jinping government to flex its muscles, mm. I led co-led an investigation into a National Party MP, Jan Young, who, as it turned out, as we exposed in a joint investigation with the FT, was a spy trainer in his early life in China and was regularly traveling back and forth to Now, security um, experts in the region said that he was very familiar with the Chinese government, and it was extraordinary that someone who was an ex-Chinese spy trainer was the head of our Foreign Affairs Committee mm. in Pakistan. Mm. Absolutely extraordinary. I believe that was in the, he was in the National Party, wasn't he, Bernard? Oh, yes. Indeed. And yeah. mind you... The Labour Party also had MPs with close connections to China just quietly stepped down from Parliament. I'm not suggesting anything that is towards, but certainly if you look around at how the Xi Jinping government operates, I don't want to come across all Churchillian, but you have to push back at some point. And I think rightly, our government, it took them a while to get there. And Anaya Mahout has been very effective and at behind she the scenes. Yeah, yeah. No, I think she had. It's it's also, let's not forget, we have talked about it before, but the, both parties had a little pact of forgetting. They agreed to shut up about both of those Chinese Chinese MPs. But, you know, I, I just think that, that the depth of engagement of the Chinese economy with the rest of the world and China's influence in the rest of the world is such that they need to be engaged with. And we've had this conversation a few times. I, I just, I cannot believe that, that a standoffish uh, militaristic approach is going to be the, is going to work in the day. I understand your, your argument about uh, pushing back, but it might be, let's, I think we should all read the, the John, what was called the long telegram by John F. Kennan, who was a very famous American diplomat and sage who came up with the policy of containment of the Soviet Union, which lasted, you know, 40 or 50 years. The idea that China is going to be contained is not credible. That's, given, that's given true. Given the level of engagement. Yeah. There's an interesting postscript to this story. So late last night, the Chinese foreign ministry applied formally to New Zealand to join the CPTPP. Yeah. What a good idea that is. Yeah. The reason this is important for New Zealand, we are the keeper of the scrolls, if you like, of the CPTPP. Mm -hmm. The ones who have all the documents with all the agreements. And if you want to join the CPPTPP, you have to come to New Zealand. And in fact, the Brits have done this in the last six months because Britain is so close to Asia-Pacific <laughs> that they really wanted to be in on this, uh, this trade pact. And you've got to remember the history here. Uh, this was something that it came out of a deal that New Zealand had done with Singapore to expand their particular trade uh, mm -hmm. deal. Obama and Biden got in on the act and said, gee, this is a really good thing, this Trans-Pacific Partnership, as it was called then. We'll get all of the countries in the Asia-Pacific region, except for China. Mm. We'll get them all together and we'll get them working on American-style trade rules. And, of course, a lot of the tech companies and the drug companies were particularly interested. They wanted to use this trade deal to force the use of much tougher protections for IP and for that thing where your books and records, yes, copyright. And Obama and Biden were keen on that. Then, of course, Trump came in and he said, no, nah, I want none of this. China. I know what to do with China. That's yeah. right. So that was gone. 
And New Zealand was left with this CPTPP, which included quite a few people that we didn't have deals with, Japan, Canada, and it's not exactly a free trade deal. So we got a little bit here and there out of it. We didn't get the real the real thing that we wanted, which was effectively a free trade deal under the covers of us TPP, mm. a deal with America. Yeah, and it was, so, of course, a counterweight also to the, to the Belt and Road Programme. But it's yep. gone about as well as the creation of the, when you have the Asia Development Bank, which is the, the Western-influenced Asian Development Bank based in Manila. When China set up the, a proxy for that based in China, the United States was rather alarmed when the, when the UK joined that. Yeah, and New Zealand was one of the people who were really pushing for that under the John Key government. We're now in a position where we're not part of this AUKUS, A-U-K-U-S. Mm. We're part of and we were not invited to join, and fair enough, because we never could join. It's not like we can afford a nuclear submarine or want one. But we were pretty blindsided by this. Basically, it was a phone call from Scott Morrison to Jacinda Ardern the day before saying, hey, mm. by the way, I have to jump Mate. in. This Mate. Yeah. Just say I'm off. Mm. And, and the Chinese have gone, oh, look, the, the New Zealanders have been sidelined here. I know. We'll put them under pressure. We'll drive a wedge. We will put New Zealand on the spot to make a choice between letting China into the CP and embarrassing our yeah, well, security. Why don't, we, why don't we offer them Opua as a deep water port in the north of New Zealand that they can turn into part of their string of pearls? Yeah, yeah, no, this anyway, we have now have this choice. Do we piss off Australia and America and Britain by welcoming China into the CPTPP? Or do we piss off China by saying, nah, we can't come into the CPTPP? And it's now put us on the spot. Now, what I think should happen is that, in line with your view, actually, Peter, I'm, I'm You've off. come across. Yeah. I, I think the clever thing for... But you'll Jacinda, misquote my view. I know what's going to happen here. Carry on. We quite like the engagement idea on this particular thing. What I think will happen, actually, and what they should do is just say to the Australians and the Brits and the Americans... Hey, the CPTPP thing is so great. Even the Chinese want to join. Mm, mm. You're already in it. Britain, you want to be in it. America, you previously wanted to be in it. Hey, Joe Biden, you know about this because Obama wanted to be in it. So we're going to let China come and apply to be in it. Now, ultimately, China isn't going to be in unless the rest of the CPTPP say yes. Mm. But what it means is that we can legitimately and authentically say to the Chinese and the rest of the world, hey, we're not powerful. We're an honest power broker but in rules-based free trade. We would love everyone to join the CPTPP. Yeah, I think it's an extremely good idea, Bernard. I mean, have you rung Jacinda today to suggest that? I think it's a very good idea. What, one thing <laughs> I saw today was, well, Carl Bildt, the former uh, Prime Minister of Sweden, who I'm, I've got to know at various points, tweeted out a couple of things quite interesting about this because, and, and he was certainly echoing that thing about the, about the European allies being somewhat taken aback by this. And he pointed out that it'll be 2040 but before these submarines are are out there, and a lot of technology is going to is going to occur, you know, going to be put in, but before then, also another friend of ours, Mike Field, was pointing out that the South China Sea, where one would imagine these submarines are going to be, you know, in from time to time, is probably the most radar detected, and it'll have it has it will have sensors all through it. These things are hardly going to be invisible. If you remember, years ago there was the. I think it was Toshiba was involved in a case in, in Japan of the, the theft of US secrets about how to keep submarines silent. This is great monolithic beasts like this are not necessarily going to be strate that strategically helpful in 2040 against a resurgent Chinese military, I would predict. And the irony here is that the Americans can afford to pay the 90 billion plus, and it'll be 180 billion by the time. Mm -hmm. they, um, they can afford to pay for it from the export receipts from the iron ore Sent to, sent to China. Yeah, you said you said the Americans actually, but yes, the Australians. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Very and, interesting. And, and the steel, well, may some of it may come from China to put into these submarines. So it's all good fun. And um, New Zealand may be able to use some leverage in the CPPTP. God, the bloody thing. Yeah. Um, to yes. Get the right. yeah. To get the Americans in and to say to uh, Biden, hey, uh, you want to do the right thing? You want to make sure that we're all on board? Well, you come on into the CPTPP and it means that New Zealand might get some sort of free trade. It's the last one we don't really have yet. Well, just Apart from... before we go off Biden, I found I am not one of those people who, you know, looks at older people, thank God, and say they're doddery old buggers. But 
he looked like a doddery old bugger the other day when he forgot forgot Scott Morrison's name. But he did do a very deft, yeah, that pal from down under. It was <laughs> ghastly. And it really makes you concerned about Biden's uh, grip. You know, he didn't do very well on the whole Afghan withdrawal. He hesitates. One of the things about him that he, he has spent most of his life getting rid of a uh, stutter, which is an extraordinary thing for a politician to have had. And so he, he has that thing of anticipating and being very careful what he says to, to help with his stutter. But I just can't help feeling that forgetting the Australian Prime Minister's name, even somebody as eminently forgettable, eminently forgettable as Scott Morrison, is not a good signal as to whether Joe is uh, quite on the money at the moment. And I, I don't think we need a US president that isn't 100%. But so I won't, I'll try not to cast aspersions, but that particular thing really worried me. Yes. Speaking about being on the money, I thought we'd segue into house prices. Oh, God. All right. <laughs> Because we did have some news this week. In well, New I saw Zealand. a story today, Bernard, which we, we could do, that the founders of Gap bought a house in Silicon Valley for $200,000 when they opened their first Gap store, and they're selling it at the moment for $100 million. So they're New Zealand kind of gains. But carry on. Back to your yeah, well, Francisco, that's where the Yimby movement started, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, backyard in San Francisco, and it's been taken up in other places. But we got the REINZ, Real Estate Institute, figures this week for August. And I remember two weeks of August was in lockdown. And the numbers were extraordinary. We all thought that the housing market would slow down after the March 23 announcement about not being able to claim uh, interest uh, as a taxable expense for landlords. Also, the Reserve Bank tightening the LVR restrictions and signalling even tighter ones last uh, couple of weeks ago. Everyone thought, well, that will cool things down. And what about the lockdown? That'll cool things down. Mm. None of it. Uh, uh, House prices rose again by 2% in the month of August and were up nationwide 31.1% from a year ago. Excellent investment. And some places, if we've got any Palmerston North viewers online today, yeah. um, Palmerston North prices up 51.6% from God, a year ago. God, who would live in Palmerston North? Mind you, it has well, got a university. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. I lived there for five years. Mm. I don't know. Mm. It's a nice place, and but 51.6%, and Wellington City up 40% in a year. Now, what does this all mean? Have you got some um, property in Wellington City, Bernard? I think you have, haven't you? Well, a lot, yeah. It's great. Yeah. It's great. Who needs to work when you can just... Uh, well, you can just the, yeah. That's the problem. And uh, the economists are actually saying that these numbers for the last two or three months show the ex housing market is accelerating. And uh, the only hope for a lot of people is that the Reserve Bank will put up interest rates soon. And it's quite possible they, they will. If you look at the numbers for GDP this week, we saw a 2.8% rise in quarterly GDP. It was much faster than everyone expected. And now everyone seems convinced the Reserve Bank will put up interest rates on mm. October 6th. Interesting. And we did see ANZ and ASB and Kiwi Bank all put up their mortgage rates just a little bit this week, which was interesting. However, I think there is a real risk that the Reserve Bank, by the time it gets to October 6th, won't be able to put up interest rates because Auckland will still be in lockdown. Because it will be emerging. Yeah, how interesting. And the rest of the world is um, seeing inflation going off the boil. So this week we saw out of America just 0.1% core inflation in the month of August. That was a third of what economists expected and meant that, ironically, the share market rose because they saw this as another sign of yet more money printing. Mm. And, low which is, which, and, and the low growth is partly because of the fears about COVID Delta, right? Yeah, Delta is really um, ripping through the unvaccinated and being a real problem for the young. And that was something else I was keen to point out in this week's Dawn Chorus is that there is a fresh outbreak of Delta in China, in the Fujian province. And just last night, we heard of 50 kids who were hospitalized in this uh, city because of COVID. The stories that will come up uh, quite strongly in the next um, month or two. Everyone has the ability to be vaccinated over the age of 12. And the idea is, as we heard from Ash Ashley Broomfield this week, that we can get over 90% vaccination rates, but that's 90% above the age of 12. Yeah, and so which is a huge number. And I, I was very impressed, actually, that I, I don't often feel this, although the Herald does some very good reporting, but the New Zealand Herald's just launched a campaign today to get to 90% or get over 90%, which I thought was a really effective use of their um, market power, really, to run a yeah. campaign, to campaign for something that is undeniably good.
Yeah, no, it's fantastic. Um, it's great now that we've actually got a number to hang it on. The Prime Minister has been very reluctant to rightly, come out. And... Rightly, I think. I was thinking about this the other day. It's absolutely correct for her to have been, to be, because I think we also have to do much, much more against the vaccine hesitant and the, well, not against them, to, to convince them. It's very, I've got a couple of them in my near family and it is driving me batty. Yeah, and it is it is really tough. And I'm actually surprised there hasn't been a more organised marketing campaign by the government to mm. push anti-vaxxers. You're seeing an awful lot of the stuff cropping up on Facebook and YouTube still. The algorithms are doing their business. Well, I think the... we discussed it too, Bernard. It's one of the reasons why the stuff where I do some work, just full disclosure, has gone back onto Facebook, particularly to try to counter that and to, to put some you know good, straight, fact-checked, proper journalism out there about it. Yeah, and definitely there is a need to push back against that stuff. And I see. <laughs> Can I just say, T Tim said a very funny thing here, which is uh, maybe the Streisand effect works for property too. Maybe we should just stop talking about it. That's a very <laughs> good. I like that very much. Yeah, we'll just uh, stop talking about property and certainly how much we've made. But then there'd be nothing to talk about, Peter. Yeah, true. true. And the good thing is none, none of our kids are in school anymore, so we don't have to talk about schools either. <laughs> Yeah, so no, Bernard, no, do you want me to talk a little bit about what I wrote about for spin-off this week? Absolutely. Is, is that is it my turn? Yeah, so Bernard, I, I wanted to focus this week. I have found it very difficult to read too many of the 9-11 remembrances and because so many of them are somewhat self-regarded very much around where I was when I saw the towers fall, often not very close. And so I wanted to focus a little bit without taking anything away from the horror and the importance of 9-11 and the loss of the Twin Towers and the damage to the Pentagon and the lives lost and so on, but to talk about the legacy of this war. And I felt that particularly when I heard the war on terror, this is when I heard George W. Bush talking the other day and rather neatly flipping it to saying that the real conflict was now domestically in the United States. And of course, it was the, 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 the divisions in the United States and the populism. But I, I think we, it's very important that we remember how George Bush aggressively pushed into that war. Obviously, he had to have a response, but he was pushed by Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney to not only go into Afghanistan, which had a legitimacy in order to try to prevent Afghanistan being used as a base for Al-Qaeda, but it was the move into Iraq, completely unconnected to 9-11, which did the damage and its lasting damage. It, the collapse of Iraq was entirely anticipatable. They didn't anticipate it. They didn't have a plan. And so if, if anybody would like to look at that stuff that I published this week from about spin on spin-off, it, it isn't so much my own work, although I put my own interpretation on it. It's a kind of collection of the really good books and writing about it to try to explain this 20-year legacy, which has left us no safer than we were in, 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 in 2001, if not Al-Qaeda. Osama bin Laden was killed, as we know, eight years later in Pakistan, presumably sheltered by uh, a theoretical ally of the West. And there's a couple of aspects of this I wanted to call out. Now, I used to know somebody in uh, Washington, D.C., who was the, offered some medical support to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed in Guantanamo Bay. And Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was the guy who was the mastermind of the 9-11 attacks, which if we, and I've always, I've never read a piece that I've always wanted to read about this or even write myself about the perversion of 9-11 and the conversion of those beautiful 757s and 767s into weapons of mass destruction. And uh, Sam, as he's known, came up with that, with that plan and executed on it with a great deal of genius. He's been waterboarded 183 times taken to the point of death by drowning 183 times since he's been in custody in 2003. And as far as I know, he's given up with very little information behind, apart, despite that level of torture. And that, that adoption of torture, if you remember Abu Ghraib, the horrific pictures of abuse of prisoners in the Abu Ghraib prison in, in Iraq, the US just absolutely incinerated its own reputation for justice, human rights, and the defense of institutions. And I think that's worth, and I'm not trying to be anti-American or anything like that, but we, this whole event, the whole 20 years has created a really remarkable legacy that we are still living with, where, you know, the war in Syria is related to that. The isolation of Iran is related, is, is, is related to this. We've turned upside down some of the most important sort of principles of international diplomacy, international law. And that, that has backfired pretty phenomenally, if you ask me. And that's the irony, is that Osama bin Laden wanted exactly that. He wanted... Exactly. 
wanted the West to essentially bankrupt and wreck itself in the reaction. And that's what's happened. Yep, we walked straight into it. So anyway, I've, I've put that link to the spin-off piece. I'm not saying it's a fabulous piece of journalism in its own right, but it may give people some really good links to, to some of the excellent books about this. And also, of course, the official inquiries, which the official inquiry into 9-11 said that the United States had to win the battle of ideas, the war of ideas, and had to use its soft power to um, show, show the kind of people who might be swayed by terror and Islamic campaigns. And we just didn't do that. We, this, is not, this has been a deployment of hard, of hard power, not soft power. And, the, and just imagine if 30 years ago, Australia had done this um, big nuclear submarine deal with America mm. and cut out, there would have been, you know, widespread outrage in New Zealand that we had missed out on helping our friends or being with our friends in America. Now, all we think is, good luck on the Australians. They'll spend a lot of money getting some nuclear submarines that they might not need. And in the process, they aggravate the Chinese. Good luck to you, mate. We don't want to be... <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, and especially for me being here, here as a COVID refugee to some extent, Bernard, Bernard, it makes me think that the kind of current New Zealand isolationist um, mentality is actually not entirely crazy. Yeah, no, we're getting pretty good at that. Now it's time for some questions and answers, and we're just going to run through them. And I mean, we may not have the answers, but we can at least talk about them. I think. That's true. Some of them we could be able to help on. So if you've got any extra uh, questions that you wanted to throw at us as opposed to statements, that would be uh, fantastic. Although we love the statements too. We, we don't, can actually... we don't. It's what we do. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's true. <laughs> good. I've been called out. That's fair. Yeah, yeah. So while we're... Just... While we're waiting for, oh, here we are. are we, while we're waiting for that, Bernard, I just wanted to mention as well, if, you, if people are thinking about their, their questions, and will they flag them up to you, Bernard? How are you going to do it? Yeah, we use the system to say that what you've got is a question, Great. although I'm just through the chat. And Kath, for example, has a question about if oh. interest rates go up unnecessarily, it will simply hurt the poor and the young more. Well, it's a really interesting question about who benefits and loses from rising or falling interest rates. One of the great um, things that a former Reserve Bank governor uh, told me once is that whenever he cut interest rates, he would get more protest mm. letters than when he increased them. Mm. And he used to letters that, you know, actual mail come through the box and someone would have written it out longhand. And green. Yeah. No. <laughs> Why did you cut my interest rates? That mean, means I'm going to get $10 a week less from my term deposit. And so older people don't benefit so much if they don't have a lot of debt and interest rates fall. Older people can do slightly better when interest rates go up. Uh, younger people who maybe wanted to get into the housing market will find it a little bit more difficult to do it if interest rates go up. But the guts of it is that no bank is going to lend to anyone, actually, simply because interest rates have gone down. It, typically, they look at your affordability below a certain threshold. At the moment, the threshold is about 6.5%. So if you look at the interest rates and they seem to have dropped a little bit and you go back to your bank and say, can you afford me now? The bank will say, it doesn't make a difference. We always look at 6.5%. 3% to 2.9% doesn't matter. You can afford it, but we're not still going to lend, not going to lend to you because you haven't met our affordability requirements on that threshold of 6.5%. Interest rates going up is an interesting pros and cons one. For example, if you had a really fast and big rise in interest rates, you would see house prices fall. And for a lot of young people, they're going, finally, I might actually get a chance to get into the housing market. And for those people who own property, that, of course, means their house price goes down in value. They're not so easily able to. My, my view, actually, is that interest rates rising in the long run is a healthy thing because where they are at the moment is not very healthy. And the longer they're down here, the more that people believe that they're going to stay here for longer and the more they gear up with long-term debt, which isn't great. And that's why I think the Reserve Bank should be running the economy extra hot so that we do get some real inflationary pressures, particularly wage inflation, and then they have to put up interest right, rates. But then but it won't, won't that all just flow into asset prices? When you say running the economy hot, that's what they've been doing with quantitative easing, which you have... Yeah, no, of course, the problem there is that it's actually not running as hot as they should. It's the horrible thing. But, of course, what you need when you run your economy hot is some flexibility on supply so that when you get lots of demand, the supply responds. At the moment, we're not... Re responding with enough housing. The issue, although 45,000 housing consents in the last year is pretty good, and it's the main thing is it needs to keep going, I think. So what other questions have we got here? What else have we got? 
isolationism. Yep, we talked about that. Advanced tech. Luckily, we haven't gone for the nuclear submarines because my joke is that the nuclear submarines will be like transmission gully, but underwater. 15 years late and cost three times as much. What else have we got here? We've talked about the iron ore. Passive investment. Oh, that's actually a really good question. So someone's asked the question, can you really have responsible investors forcing companies to do the right thing when mm. so much is in index tracking funds where the money is dumb money, if you like. It's just plonked in there simply because the company is categorized as being worth a certain amount and in a certain sector. A certain and it's an index, yeah. So, and BlackRock, of course, is the biggest index tracker in the world and has become really popular as a very efficient way to put money in places. But of course, there is now index tracker funds which do responsible investing. So effectively, it's the, the ratings agencies, the S&Ps or the, or the Moody's or the whoever is creating these indices who effectively do the responsible investing process of winnowing out the baddies from the goodies. Mm. Is a, there is a really good point there in our, from our questioner, which is how can the stock market and companies be accountable when most of the funds are managed not by actual humans reading annual accounts and asking CEOs curly questions, but actually an algorithm, a bot, who really doesn't know or care whether a CEO is dodgy or not, or whether a company is making weapons mass destruction or whatever it is they just want to know what the dividend or the share price has done so i think that's a really good point that at some point th there must be a threshold above which the amount of passive investing mm. becomes counterproductive yeah and where i, I don't know the masters of the universe I reckon sure. there's, got to, there's got to be a um a room for a podcast uh, probably sponsored by Sharesies Bernard, possibly by somebody who is, you know, quite experienced in financial matters that actually address the Sharesies audiences and turns the Sharesies group into people, into activists. Ah, oh, you've you're talking my language, Peter. Yeah, yeah. I think we've I think we've come up with our new business or your new business plan. Yes. Uh, you can invoice me later. <laughs> yeah. So you'll be, you'll be yeah, I'll, yeah, I will be invoicing you later. Sorry, Tim Someone... asks, what's our position on the new narrative Indo-Pacific versus Asia-Pacific? Haven't noticed yeah, no. the New Zealand government position yeah, no. yet. Largely a, a creation of the Americans and the Australians to exclude China. Because, of course, the Asia-Pacific framing, which largely came from Paul Keating, actually. And Paul Keating is um, an interesting character. He was one of the few people in Australia who came out. Very hard against the pump submarines. And he's absolutely yep. right. He was the one who's raising this whole all the way with LG, L, L, LBJ stuff. We mm. haven't had this kind of approach since Menzies. No. Yeah, that's right. And Keating is, for my money, is the sharpest, most um, admirable, dangerous, scary politician I've ever seen in real yep. life. And he says he thinks that too. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, yeah. Andre asked something in there that you that you uh, wanted to address. In fact, last week, which we didn't, I don't think, which was El Salvador opting to have for Bitcoin. Now, I have ill-formed views on cryptocurrencies. I have very well. I have relatively, by my standards, well-informed views about uh, the blockchain and its incredible use in all sorts of areas. But I'm extreme. I remain extremely skeptical about cryptocurrencies. What do you think about this um, El Salvador decision and the impact it's had? Yeah, El Salvador, of course, is an experiment that can be afforded by El Salvador because it doesn't have a currency that is worth anything of its own. Effectively, it's dependent on the U.S. dollar, as are many of these um, other failed states. And large parts of the world, actually, if you rock up in Afghanistan or Russia, the, the U.S. dollar thing and so they can afford to make a part on bitcoin but remember when they launched it on the day a the app the official app for actually exchanging bitcoin value between consumers and retailers and consumers and each other uh, didn't work wasn't available on google app google play store or the apple app store and eventually they scrambled and got it on it wasn't very good it was government run the value of bitcoin dropped 17 percent in a day and then bounce another 19 percent higher really and this will earn me the ire of lots of people i'm sure bitcoin and the other cryptocurrencies are in a an interregnum 
before they are regulated out of existence and it becomes a crime to be involved in cryptocurrency because it's very clear the central banks and the regulators around the world are hoovering up all of those people, banks in particular, who have any interactions with the crypto world and making it illegal because crypto, understandably, challenges the sovereign authority mm. of government. One of the few things that gives you power as a government is the ability to create currencies. And secondly, it is becoming the currency of choice to launder money. If you're a drug dealer or, mm. a, or a criminal of some sort, it's, it's crypto. And I'm really surprised that some very sensible, upright people have got very involved in crypto when it's clear it's just a matter of time before the regulators catch up with the various banks and other people who are involved. And that's been one of the themes of this year so far, that the exchanges like Binance and various mm. others actually being marginalized and bullied and shut down and eventually will become dangerous to have anything to do with. This week that Laos, which has a, an awful lot of hydroelectric power, has opened itself up to Bitcoin mining. What could possibly go wrong there? Yeah. And there's a bunch of people who think we should turn TY Oh, Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. I do. I, I, I it, a data center first, but then possibly a, 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 a Bitcoin mining center. Yeah. No, because, of course, that's the other thing, is that crypto uses twice as much electricity as, as New Zealand does. And, in fact, Ethereum is particularly a, a hog on electricity. It uses electricity as Lithuania. Actually, Jane, um, Jane makes a really good comment, though, Bernard, in the messages that what about central bank-backed cryptocurrencies? Because uh, I, yes. I, I think you're right that they are going to attempt to regulate them. My, my sense is that Bitcoin is purely the strongest because of the weight behind it as opposed to any inherent benefit relative to Ethereum or any of the others, or Dogecoin and so on. It's about scale. So in a sense, it's almost like a fiat currency that happens to be a cryptocurrency in, in that it's very widely held. Therefore, it has some theoretical value. The problem with uh, Bitcoin and, and the rest so far is that it actually takes an awful long time to process transactions. And you can't actually use it as a you know, currency for day-to-day -day use, you might be able to pay for things other here and there. Other than in El Salvador. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing is that it's so volatile that let's say you sell your house today and then make sure the money is transferred tomorrow. The value of the house could go up or down 30%. Yeah. But, but, but to the point that Jane's making about, about whether there will be script, uh, central bank-backed cryptocurrency, I, I suspect what you will see is not so much central bank-backed cryptocurrencies, but much, much enhanced use of blockchain as identification, contract for contract exchanges, smart contracts, that kind of thing. So that the, the underlying technology is absolutely remarkable, but the, whether the best use of it is in cryptocurrencies is another matter. Yeah, and New Zealand is a bit behind the curve on this. Australia has just gotten involved with the Bank for International Settlements mm -hmm. and a, effectively a, a digital currency exchange which will allow people to very quickly and easy, easily transact between digital currencies and send money back and forth overseas. This is one of the real use cases for um, crypto is to try and get away from this horrible gouging of um, margins by banks and money transfer companies, for particularly for the, the people who are sending back remittances to the Pacific or the Philippines or Mexico. Yeah. Bernard, somebody and, asked us as well, just, I am changing the subject fractionally, but Kane asks about, because it's a relate, it's an adjacent thing about ETS and carbon markets. Now, you're more, I don't really know the New Zealand situation, but I, I do have to believe that putting a price on carbon and making it tradable, being a bit of, being a, bit of a capitalist, that, that, that creating a market out of carbon credits has to be the right, a, a part of the answer. Would you want to answer that question from Kane? No, finally, the emissions trading scheme is starting to get some traction. For a long time, it was so uh, hampered by its design and the reluctance of the New Zealand government to include various sectors. There were all sorts of gimmies handed out. For a long time, people could use dodgy credits they could bring in from Russia and Eastern mm -hmm. Europe. And finally, a proper regulation and the increasing use of it by a lot of people, particularly the forestry industries, have turned the emissions trading scheme into somewhat something halfway decent as mm -hmm. a, a price carbon. I agree with you. If, if you're going to use the markets to 
uh, try to solve a problem uh, like this, uh, some sort of carbon price or emissions trading scheme is the best way to do it. Finally, we're almost getting there. The price of um, carbon has increased quite dramatically actually in the last two or three months as people start using it a lot more and people come to realize that we've got a problem. We're going to have to get rid of a lot of carbon emissions. And in particular, we have a problem 20 or 30 years down the track where our carbon emissions are too high and we have breached our uh, commitments on the international markets and we're as a country going to have to come up with billions and billions of dollars to buy other people's carbon credits and that's something i think the treasury and others should take into account when they're making decisions about building new motorways or whatever that they're actually just um, not only create something that will increase emissions you know, they'll also create something with a huge liability down the track and 60 dollars is the new carbon price we should all know it it's probably going to go over 100 bucks within a couple of years according mm. to various four i I think it's we're finally getting there. I think once the farming sector gets included in the ETS, that will be great. And also once we start to apply the disciplines of whatever we propose to the Glasgow agreement coming up. That's the other piece of big news this week, that the dog ate the government's homework on climate change. Mm, it rather did, didn't it? It was supposed to be a response from the government to the Climate Change Commission's recommendations by the end of this year. There was supposed to be a draft paper out in September or October saying this is what the government's going to do to try and reduce emissions in the way that the Climate Commission want. And they're going to have to be quite dramatic things. Massive subsidies for electric vehicles, a lot of spending on public transport infrastructure, a lot of repurposing of roads and motorways that Mike, Rob, that Mike Hosking would, would drive on into cycleways and well, walkways. The, the, the good thing is we'll have a four-lane four lane, uh, highway one to Wellington. At least wow. in Orleans, particularly across oh. the desert road, and yeah, past, and past the and past the logistics centres that I want to have built in Turangi and Waiuru. Yeah, yeah, no, we, we certainly need to improve our transport system, and there's there should be lots of really big policy ideas, and they're politically painful. And the government, I think, has we don't know, but certainly it didn't help that we had COVID for the last six weeks. But James Shaw had to announce this week that he wants a five month get out of jail free card for responding to the climate commission's recommendations effectively the dog ate my homework mm. and COVID is the reason for doing it he wants to actually change the law do we, to do give we know bernard whether the end of the lack of tourism the lack of international flights the disruption that COVID has caused has actually led to a reduction in carbon emissions in new zealand of course actually we've been, we've been burning quite a lot of coal at huntley so that may have offset it but carry on that's the, do we know of, yeah we do in fact there's some numbers from stats nz showing that our emissions rose in the uh, last year yeah and and it mainly because of Huntley. That's yeah. exactly so. Sure, we haven't got a, a skateboarding dog to dog story today, but I've got two rather remarkable book stories out of the US. But it is going to mean that I have to use some rude words. Am I allowed? Go for since they're in yes. the so so. There's a new book. Well, there's as you know, there's many new books out. Some of which show some absolutely extraordinary things. And one of them is by Bob Woodward, the uh, Washington Post journalist who did the All the President's Men Watergate investigation, and of course Bill Barr is in there. We remember Bill Barr, as a, which, who I've always envisaged being played in the story of his life by John Goodman. And Bill Barr apparently said to Trump, let me just quote, that, that most suburban Republican voters, quote, just think you're a fucking asshole, close quotes, he said, told Trump, and said, they think that you act like an asshole. And you've got to, you've got to start taking that into account. And said that, you know, he considered himself to be a, a political genius, which he wasn't. And similar language, which is most amusing to me, has come out about the chief Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mike Milley. And you might remember that absolutely ludicrous photo op when Trump marched across the, the park opposite the White House to the church and waved, possibly even upside down, a Bible. And he was joined at that time by Mark Milley in a military outfit and, and Essa, who was at that time the Secretary of State to Defense. And according to the Woodward book, Milley said, I'm fucking done with this shit when Trump paid a surprise visit to St. John's Episcopal Church. Now, he's also, of course, been revealed this week as having talked to his Chinese counterparts twice during the last years of the last months of, sorry, of the Trump presidency to try to reassure them that there would be no attack on China because he was uh, afraid, apparently, according to this book, that Trump could do anything in the run up to the, to the January 6th attack on, uh, on the Capitol. And so he talked twice to the Chinese to reassure them. And, of course, has now been called on to resign by, the, uh, by various Republicans who see this as a treachery.
This is ex- absolutely extraordinary. Can you imagine being that Chinese general when mm. Mark brings mm. up and said, hey, it's quite possible my president could push a button and send something your way. Now, if that happens, just please don't nuke us back. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So he did, he did, you know, he would, let me just find the quote here. He, in the book, his calls were the, sorry, I'm trying to find this. You know, Millie, Millie was so concerned. This is talking about the, the commander-in-chief. He, under, he literally undermined the commander-in-chief, Trump, and tried to put various mechanisms in place to prevent Trump, Trump being able to do something really dangerous, either against China or Iran in those fast week, past weeks. Yeah, no, it, it's been quite a week for news. There's been plenty happening. But just that one alone is just so mind-stonkingly. Yeah, absolutely. Huge. So Millie that, told, Millie told uh, Nancy Pelosi, quote, there's not a snowball's chance in hell this president or any president can launch nuclear weapons illegally, immorally, unethically, without proper certification. Yeah, you do see, that's one of the amazing things about the American president. Whenever they go around, they've got that mm, soup football to some poor souls or 24-7. And you think, my God, just imagine the power in that. And God, I hope that someone's keeping an eye on it. And it's pretty scary when you look at the history of nuclear, the nuclear arms race, since obviously the two bombs went off in Japan. It's mm. some sort of, that we haven't had it, some accident. There's been various, very close shaves, mm-hmm. things, that, things that were accidentally Buttons were pushed, and it's just amazing. I think that we haven't had an accidental mm. go off in some way, or some sort of accidental exchange of fire. Pat just mentioned that you know it was because China was worried, and, and yes, they were. They really picked up the sense that anything could happen, and he did have to re- to reassure. It seems to me that this is a, this is exactly part of Mark Milley's job, but the potential for it to be seen as a form of treason is remarkable. Yeah. Hey, it's been a fun old lap around the traps. Well, I wish I could say the same. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Enjoy it. And um, it's been really fun, Peter. Thank you again. And thank you all to those people who've participated today. Thank you for your questions. I hope we've answered some of them. And uh, you're very welcome to come back again 